Hello, everyone, and welcome to the What About the Canadians podcast. My name is Ashley. And my name is Shauna. And we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season, we will be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. More specifically, we'll be examining the battles the Canadians served in. All right, welcome to our special Remembrance Day episode and our very first mini-sode. So, <laughs> Shauna, I have to say, at least what the cool kids are saying on TikTok, like, I didn't understand the assignment. Because, like, mini-sodes, <laughs> we decided we're going to be, like, 10, 15 minutes. Um, I think this is going to be like a full-length episode so if you haven't done so maybe like go we'll put like a pause like go go grab a drink and like just like sit back and chill <laughs> you know ash i'm really sorry you kind of already lost me with the tiktok thing i i do not tiktok i don't know oh, anything about tiktok i'm too old for that oh shauna <laughs> You old millennial, you. I am. <laughs> Enlighten me, um, Ash. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep you on track. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So um, today we are going to be talking about John McRae. Now, Shauna, I know you know who John McRae is, but I have to say I was a little surprised at how many people I know had no clue who he, who he was. Like, People would be like, hey, how's the podcast going? I'd be like, yeah, I'm like working on my John McRae episode. And they're like, I don't know who that is. So I was like, all right, I feel like like the clouds from the heavens have opened and like shine a light down on me. And they're like, <laughs> Ashley, like bring us the good news. That is John McRae. And I'm like, I got you. <laughs> so <laughs> Ashley, you found your calling. <laughs> I did. You have no idea how excited I am about this. He's like... One of my new favorite people. Wow. All right. I am excited <laughs> for this one. Okay. Awesome. So let's get started. So John McRae was born to David McRae and Janet Eckford at 108 Water Street in Guelph, Ontario on November 30th, 1872. Now, his mother was the daughter of a Scottish Presbyterian minister who moved his two daughters to Canada in 1850 after Janet's mother died in childbirth. Now, in Canada, the family settled on a farm near Walkerton, Ontario. So on his father's side, John's grandfather, Thomas, immigrated to Canada from the stewartry of Kirk Cudbright, Scotland, with his wife, Jean, and his two children in 1849. So after trekking the 265 kilometers from Rochester, New York, through mud and rough terrain, uh, they made acquaintance with the community in what I found to be a rather kind of humorous way. So they found a church in the nearby town of Aramosa, and a man by the name of Dr. Barry approached the family after the service to welcome them. But he added, you have come to a grand country, but the scum of all the earth come here. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, but this nice. place sucks. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> 
so scum as they may be, the McCrays became successful proprietors and farmers, establishing the local lumber and woolen mills, in addition to becoming the most respected breeder of Galloway cattle in Canada. Now, at age 33, David inherited those mills and Janesfield Farm. Now, Janesfield Farm is the name of his parents' farm, which was located just on the outskirts of town. Um, however, David did not reap the same economic success as his father, and this was in part because he did not have the same interests or really the aptitude for commercial activities. Um, but it was also kind of due to the economic downturn um, that was happening at the turn of the century. So at one point in time, David was forced to sell the mills in order to pay off his mortgage. But really, the loss of the mills was kind of inconsequential to David. Uh, he was really devoted to his farm and positioned as lieutenant colonel in the, art pardon me, the artillery militia. Now, David served in the Fenian raids and kept abreast of military exploits throughout the empire for most of his life. Now, both David and Janet were devout to their faith, and they fostered a strong sense of morality and an appreciation for what author John Prescott described as plain living and high thinking within their children. Now, according to the author, John would inherit his father's passion for soldiering and his pride for the British Empire, but he would inherit his mother's intelligence, humor, sensitivity, and strong sense of service for humankind. Aw, that's cute. You know, it's kind of sweet. See, I'm starting to build up of why this man is so lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so as soon as John could stand on his own two feet, he freely spent his childhood days running around Janesfield with his older brother Thomas and younger sister Jeels. Now, whether fishing or swimming in the nearby pond or catching bugs in the fields, John lived his own mini adventures similar to the stories he devoured in the highly popular The Boy's Own Paper magazine. <laughs> I guess this was a big magazine at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so when John grew tired of pretending to be the admiral on the British Navy, uh, he could be found chatting with Lady Christabel, Stam, and Puss Now, which, of course, were some of the family's beloved farm animals. I love those names. I know, it's awesome. <laughs> I love Lady Christabel and Pussnell. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, John had a special ability to connect with animals and his kinship with them would play an important role in his life, especially during the war. Now, in contrast to his imaginative nature, John was also a studious and disciplined boy that dedicated himself to his academic pursuits. Now, he enrolled in the Guelph Collegiate Institute at the age of 12, and then at the age of 17, he won a scholarship to the University of Toronto, where he, of course, graduated at the top of his class and then later enrolled in medical school. Now, despite his strong work ethic, uh, John never did lose his sense of playfulness. Now, he joined the rugby team, the varsity glee club, uh, the Zeta Phi fraternity, for example, and uh, in his scrapbooks, he kept magazine articles about military matters of the day, poetry and pictures of landscapes, animals, and of course, <laughs> the beautiful young ladies in the magazines. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this guy did it all, hey? I know. I found it rather humorous because it's like, you think, oh, that maybe sounds a little scandalous, but... 
this is like on the cusp of the Edwardian era. So you have to think like almost a little bit Downton Abbey with like the long skirts and the big hats. (laughs) (laughs) Not very scandalous actually at all. No, those are the ladies he fancied. Um, Now, John was uh, not shy from indulging in some modest flirtation with the ladies. Uh, In a letter to the lovely Miss Laura Kane, he wrote, I never knew you had as many sisters as you say you have. Are they all as good looking as, excuse me, you will be vain, so I shall change the subject. Whoa. He's got moves. That gentleman, mm, mm, that is how it is done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, the nature of John's relationship with Laura is unclear, but he often signed his letters with affection. Now, sources also note that there was another young lady that captured his attention during this period, um, but she sadly passed away. So despite kind of being unlucky in love, um, John did have other worries to preoccupy him. Now, John was an asthmatic and the polluted Toronto air was becoming just far too much for his lungs to handle. So he was forced to take leave from his studies and return home to Guelph. Now, he was hired on as the resident master of mathematics at the Ontario Agricultural College. However, John was still quite young And it wasn't really well suited for that role yet. So he kind of went back to Toronto anyway, despite his afflictions. So graduating medical school at the top of his class in 1898, the brilliant John McRae moved to Baltimore to study at Johns Hopkins Hospital under the direction and mentorship of Sir William Osler. He was a Canadian physician that was widely regarded as one of the greatest doctors of modern medicine. Um, But his studies were again interrupted, um, this time not by health concerns, but instead with the outbreak of the Second Boer War on October 11th, 1899. Now, kind of under the heavy influence of his father, John became fascinated with the military from a young age. He joined the Highland Cadet Corps at age 12 and was awarded a gold medal for the best drilled cadet from the Ontario Ministry of Education when he was 15. And uh, on top of that, he also volunteered with a number of militia units in Guelph and Toronto while pursuing his degree. And at the outbreak of war, he immediately enrolled in the Royal Canadian Artillery. So really, it shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us that he was pretty bitterly disappointed when the Canadian government only sent a small contingent of infantrymen to aid the British. And it kind of makes me like go back to the Sam Hughes <laughs> episode where he, Sam Hughes is like, uh-uh, I'm going to just contact the British, bypass the government, we're just going to I'm just go. doing it. We're I don't care. Go. I'm doing it. <laughs> so it makes me wonder, like, maybe the two... <laughs> in cahoots with each other because by December of 1899 uh, the need for artillery units became um, pretty critical. So in weighing his residency at Johns Hopkins against the opportunity to fight for the mother country he noted my position here I do not regard as an old boot in comparison. Now I have to say John I think I'd be a little more um, <laughs> more importance on my residency. 
hospital than the war, but... Yeah, but it's so much less exciting. He was a very patriotic man. So on January 1st, 1900, Lieutenant John McRae boarded the SS Laurentian to Cape Town. So his military exploits in South Africa didn't exactly cure his appetite for war. Uh, this is because he spent most of his time marching over hundreds of kilometers and practicing drills. Now, the most dangerous incident he experienced was an accident rather than a product of any sort of military action. Um, so when he was crossing a swamp, his horse tripped up and actually fell on top of him, which almost caused him to drown. Um, so luckily, he was with other people that were able to pull him out. So that was a close call for him. But otherwise, the most formidable threat to his unit was exposure. And this is where John developed a contempt for the Canadian Medical Corps. He wrote to his mother on April 3rd, There are 75 cases of dysentery. The British officers have commandeered all the water tanks in town, while the Canadians have to drink the muddy river water. Then, to add insult to injury, the staff surgeon comes down and rides around and says, You damn fools, don't drink that water. Now, upon John's own inspection of the hospitals, he observed, For absolute neglect and rotten administration, it is a model. I am glad I am not a med out here. No, thank you. But uh, I mean, I mean, when you're kind of trained in that field, you're going to end up tending to the sick and wounded anyway. Um, and he did so for both the human and animal kind. Uh, in fact, John was criticized by his superiors for being too attentive and cautious with his horses. I mean, although it was primarily driven by his compassion for the animals, he did recognize, maybe more than others, just how imperative horses were to the artillery units. And by kind of identifying them as an important asset rather than an expendable, he ended up losing fewer horses than any other unit, so... Good on you, John. <laughs> <laughs> so he did return home on January 9th, uh, 1901, and immediately got back to work. Now, to call John a workaholic would probably be an understatement. So I'm going to list his many accomplishments that happened over a 13-year uh, span, many of which uh, were happening sim simultaneously. So first, he was a medical professor at the University of McGill teaching pathology. He was a visiting professor at the University of Vermont teaching bacteriology and pathology. He was a resident pathologist at the Montreal General Hospital. He was an associate in medicine at the Royal Victoria Hospital, a doctor for the Royal Alexandria Hospital for Infectious Diseases, a pathologist at the Montreal Foundling and Baby Hospital, and he ran a private practice. So, so did they just <laughs> not have enough doctors and pathologists then, or was he just that good? I don't I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just gonna go with he was that great. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Okay. So all the while while this was happening, he was also researching and writing a book called A Textbook of Pathology for Students of Medicine. So you would 
think that this man would be kind of be like next level cranky because like I would be. Um, but like one of his peers actually noted that his students loved him for the interest he always displayed in their difficulties and because he showed the human side of medicine. They loved him too because he never feared to step away from the dignity of teacher to the level of student. Now, on top of that, he was apparently very funny and kept the material he taught interesting. So now because John didn't have enough to do, he joined a 5,000 kilometer expedition at the invitation of Governor General Earl Grey. Now, they were looking to establish a new route to England for wheat exports. So the 38-man voyage left in their canoes from the northeast corner of Lake Winnipeg. They traveled up through the Hudson's Bay to Baffin Island and then back down the east coast. And, you know, just because they happened to be in the neighborhood one day, they stopped in for a quick cup of tea with Anna Green Gables author Lucy Maud Montgomery. Oh, nice little throw in there, Ash. <laughs> Thank you. But it's kind of like, well, it's like they were fans. So they're like, we should just go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you can do that today with people. <laughs> no, I think you have to text first at the very least. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, okay. So it was also during this time that John fell in love with a mystery woman that we only know as Lady R or his esteemed lady. However, being from a well-to-do family from Montreal, she looked upon the dowdy John McRae in a rather unfavorable light. In a letter to his close friend, she wrote that John wore suits that were too old and too small, sort of giving us this implication that maybe she viewed John as being below her status. Now, this mysterious Lady R moved to New York, leaving John with the choice between suicide or work. And his good friend, Andrew McPhail, later wrote, and this is the darling McRae was in love with until his death. This man's a genius. I know. I know. Like, Lady R, I would like to know who you think you are. Because <laughs> <laughs> Ashley is in love with your man. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> he totally would have been my type, for sure. <laughs> uh, but suicide or work, there's, there's things in between. Yeah, that's what his friend Oscar Klott said. So that's not his words, but I'm guessing he was pretty upset. Yeah. Okay. So this finally brings us to the summer of 1914. So John was actually in England for a holiday with Dr. Osler and his family when war was declared on Germany. Now, John wrote to his brother that, Surely good old Emperor Billy has got his head in the noose at last. It is now he or us. So being offered the position of major and brigade surgeon of the 1st Brigade Artillery, all those B words that I love, (laughs) uh, John raced home to meet up with his old artillery buddies and his university peers at Camp Valcartier. Now, the one thing I have to say I didn't sit well with me was he he didn't even stop to say goodbye to his mother 
because he feared it would just be too hard on her. Well, he was thinking about her. He he had the best intentions. I don't know. It's like, if you're going to war, you, you stop and you say goodbye to your mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't want to cause her any undue pain. I guess so. I would have been upset. Yeah, I'd but, be um, super mad. Well, there you go. <laughs> Case in point, Shauna. <laughs> Uh, so in our first episode, I gave a bit of a scathing review of Camp Valcarche, but uh, John actually wrote about it in a more favorable light. So it kind of just goes to show that it's really about perspective and maybe in my case, the books that I chose to read and research for that episode. <laughs> and how much you dislike Sam Hughes and his part in Valcarche. I don't think there is anything to contradict that, though, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it might alter your perspective a little bit. Maybe John McRae didn't know Sam Hughes and didn't know how bad he screwed that up. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) He had no reference. That's right. (laughs) I kind of wonder if maybe they met in the Boer War. Maybe. There's still like a couple thousand that went down there. I don't know. We will never know, I guess. We'll never know. However, he wholeheartedly agreed that the camp on Salisbury Plain was a nightmare. Now, because of the rotten conditions, John was constantly tending to the horses. When John first arrived, the horses were kept in open fields, and this included his beloved horse, Bonfire. Now, Bonfire was gifted to him by Dr. John Todd from McGill University. He was a beautiful Irish thoroughbred with brown hair and white socks. Now, regardless of how essential horses were to the army, the brass prohibited the men from sheltering their horses in a nearby wood because the woods were being preserved for fox hunting for the locals, because that was important. Yeah. Uh, You gotta have some sort of entertainment, I guess. Did they eat foxes or was that just for fun? I don't know. I've never heard of any fox recipes before. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think it was probably just like a like a pleasure leisurely thing. Yeah, for sport, right? Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Um, but John wrote in his diary that uh, it is pitiful and it makes me boil. We are doing our duty as best we see it, but it is so heartbreaking. So with their own pocket money, the senior officers of the 1st Brigade rented some nearby stables so their horses could recover from the exposure. So now, after waiting three long months at the camp, um, John was deployed to France on February 7th, 1915. I actually kind of found it interesting. I didn't realize that while the men were um, at Salisbury Plain, they were never told anything that was going on in Europe. They knew nothing. Really? Yeah, I found that interesting. Well, there was rumors, at least when they were on the ship, that the war was going to be over before they even got off the ship. But I guess rumors start when there's no facts coming in. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, So after several days of observation on the front lines at Metaren, the 1st Brigade Artillery marched to Fleur Bay, don't know if I said that right, Um, where they would provide aid in the Battle of New Chapelle. 
Now, Bonfire particularly loved the farm where they were billeted as the gingerbread cookies were utterly delectable. Yeah, so, I gotta stay where there's gingerbread. <laughs> I would. Yeah. <laughs> so now John might not have been under direct fire from the Germans at Neuf Chapelle, but he was certainly caught in the crossfire between the McGill University and the Canadian Army Medical Corps over the naming of the new war hospital in France. Now, the Canadian Surgeon General, Guy Carlton Jones, I think it's Guy, not Guy, because he's English. Yeah, it's probably Guy then. Yeah, I'm sorry if I get that wrong. Um, He basically despised the idea of naming the hospital McGill, and he invented his outrage onto John. Now, John wasn't exactly a favorite of Jones either. Now, if you remember, John detested the medical corps, and it was his good pal, Colonel Morrison, that received permission from none other than... Sam Hughes? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To bring him into the artillery. And Jones found this infuriating. Uh, But John was so happy to remind him that he was not yet incorporated into that holy, happy band. (laughs) And as such, he had no interest in the dispute. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so on April 1st, the 1st Brigade marched north to an area just outside of Ypres. Now, if John had been waiting for his fill of war, he was certainly about to receive it. Now, on the day after the first gas attacks on the Algerian French, John wrote the following in his journal. So, quote, Along the road, which was constantly shelled on spec by the Germans, one saw all the sights of war, wounded men limping or carried, ambulances, trains of supply, troops, army mules, and tragedies. I saw one bicycle orderly, A shell exploded and he seemed to pedal on for eight or ten revolutions and then collapsed in a heap. Dead. Straggling soldiers would be killed or wounded, horses also, until it got to be a nightmare. I used to shudder every time I saw wagons or troops on that road. My dugout looked out on it. I got a square hole, eight by eight, dug in the side of the hill, roofed over with remnants to keep out the rain and a little sandbag parapet, pet, me, parapet on the back to prevent pieces of back kick shells from coming in. Some straw on the floor completed it. Sounds homey. Well, you and I, we had the privilege of seeing this eight by dugout. We did, that's right. Yes. Um, yeah, so if you are ever in and Belgium, and you're interested, um, you can go see these hospital bunkers that John McRae would have served in, in the sort of the Ypres region. So they are preserved. So, I mean that that was that was neat. To can see. we give our tour company a little plug? Do you remember the name of it? Yeah, um, they were called Quasimodo Tours, and they were amazing. It was a fantastic tour. It was out of. Bruges, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Bruges. Yeah, I think it was Bruges. Yeah. So I can um I can find um, them and put a link in our show notes. So if you're ever if you're ever there, it's definitely worth worth seeing. 
So on May 2nd, John's friend, Lieutenant Alex Helmer, was hit directly by shellfire. He ordered that his remains be gathered and buried at the Essex Farm Cemetery. Now finding a place to himself, he sat overlooking a field of poppies and wrote these famous words on a scrap piece of paper. In Flanders fields the poppies blow, between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved. And now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you, from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. Looking at his poem, John crumpled up the piece of paper, threw it on the ground, and got back to work. On May 9th, the 1st Brigade was redeployed to the front lines at Festubert. John described his time at Ypres as the 17 Days of Hades, and he was especially outraged when he learned that the newspapers were reporting that the artillery units were in reserve. He wrote home to his mother, I am glad you had your mind at rest by the rumor that we were in reserve. What newspaper work? The poor old artillery never gets any mention and the whole show is the infantry. Newspapers which arrive show that the Canadian public has made no guess at the extent of the Battle of Ypres. The Canadian papers seem to have lost interest in it after the first four days. And it does kind of, sad, but it does ring true when you're not experiencing something. You can't relate. Yeah, it's different than being there. And knowing, you know, you can only report so many times what's going on over there in the same battle, I guess. But uh, I never thought of that. And I, I think I would feel frustrated being a soldier as well. So within the few, first few days of arriving at Festibert, John was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel and moved to London to help prepare for the opening of the number three Canadian General Hospital at in Eatables? Edibles? Edibles. I have no idea how to say that. I meant to look it up and I forgot. <laughs> anyway, it's in France. <laughs> it's in France. Um, so John was irritated that Surgeon General Guy Jones succeeded in both his battles. The first being bringing John into the medical corps and the second in the naming of the new hospital. John resented being removed from his men and he wrote that I expect to wish often that I had stuck by the artillery. Um, however, I, I don't think it was really his choice to make. So, sorry, John. Um, at least his time in London brought some reprieve um, as he was able to visit his good friend, Dr. Osler. Um, but his wife, Grace, observed that John looked thin and worn. Uh, the nerve strain, he says, is beyond any sensation possible to describe. He feels the Allies will win, but nothing can be ended except by absolute exhaustion. So I think 
what she's kind of alluding to here is John is starting to experience what we call post-traumatic stress. I can imagine that he would be. Yes, especially being a doctor. Oh my god, oh my goodness, like seeing all that and having the guilt, I'm sure, of having people die at your hands all the time, every day almost, I'm certain of it. Yeah, and it would be it would be nonstop too. Yeah. So the number 3 Canadian General Hospital opened August 8th, 1915. Now, the number three was built from Durbar tents donated from India. Now, Durbar tents are kind of like these big bell circus type tents. Um, And the purpose of the hospital um, was to care for soldiers to the point where they could either return to the front line or be shipped off to England for further treatment. Now, for the first month and a half, work at the hospital remained steady. But that changed with the British offensive at Luz. Now, within the first week, the hospital was already over capacity. So we're talking over a thousand people here. And they were performing over 30 surgeries a day. Now, the strain on the medical staff was exasperated when the winter winds from across the channel brought in cold rains that flooded their tents. The nursing staff had to trudge through mud just to tend to the sick. Now, of course, these conditions brought forth an onslaught of new infections. The commanding officer of the number three general documented that, and I quote, I have seen cases in the operating room in which the tissues are so rotten with infection that portions of muscle tissue can be removed by the handful. Ooh. Yeah. It was bad. Oh, that's gross. So um, John, of course, being an expert in pathology, and for those that don't know, pathology is the study of disease. Um, My guess is he was probably doing double time and a half um, just to keep up with the demand at that time. And of course, by his own his own doing, John refused to sleep in the officer's hut, preferring instead to sleep in the tents because it seemed improper to enjoy such comforts that were not granted to the men in the field. Um, but John's stubbornness to be the first and or to be first and foremost recognized as a soldier rather than a doctor would kind of come to his detriment. So if you remember, John had asthma, and after experiencing the gas attacks at Ypres, along with those damp European winters, um, he often fell ill with bronchi- or bronchitis, pleuris, and the common cold. He's got to slow down. He- Yes. Yes, he does. (laughs) Uh, When I was researching this, I'm like, this man's making me tired. (laughs) I'm not even the one doing it. (laughs) I'm just tired reading about it. (laughs) Uh, So for obvious reasons, um, the hospital was eventually relocated to a permanent structure near the city of Boulogne. Now, the demands of the war continued to press heavily on John throughout 1916 and 1917, as the number three general tended to the wounded coming in from the Somme, Vimy, and Passchendaele. Now, at his own personal loss, um, Edward Revere Osler, who was the son of his good friend, Dr. William Osler, died at Passchendaele. Now, John had watched Edward grow from a young boy, and the two undoubtedly developed a friendship while Edward was the quartermaster at the number three hospital. 
But his father wrote that Edward's long association with Jack McRae has made him a bit bloodthirsty, kind of implying that John influenced his son's decision to transfer out of the medical corps into the Royal Artillery. So I, I would guess that this loss would have been especially taxing on John. And Major Harvey Cushing even observed that John does not appear to me at all like the person of former days. He is silent, asthmatic, moody. But one of the few things that continued to put a smile on John's face was his beloved horse, Bonfire. Now, John wrote home to his mother that, I have a very deep affection for Bonfire, for we have been through so much together and some of it bad enough. I will note there is an entire book written about Bonfire. That is fantastic. I didn't get to read it because I couldn't I couldn't find a source like like get a copy of it. Um, but it does exist. And I'll put a link in the show notes if you're interested. And he also has a Facebook page. Bonfire does? Yes. Oh, I love that. It's associated with the book, but um, apparently Bonfire was quite the celebrity in France. <laughs> so, that is so wonderful. It's pretty cute. Um, so, of course, when John was in need of solitude, he would take Bonfire for a ride in a peaceful meadow. Now, when he needed a little reminder of the innocence of the world, he would stroll through the streets of Boulogne with Bono. Now, Bono was a dog that abandoned his owner to live with John. <laughs> this is how like great like John was with animals. <laughs> it's so cute. I feel bad for the owners, but yeah, your dog <laughs> abandons you during war to go live with somebody else. Well, the dog belonged to I think the caretakers of the hospital, so I think they would have been on site anyway, but I think I would have been heartbroken if my dog <laughs> left me. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, he he would uh, uh, he would travel the streets with Bono, and uh, although his good friend Andrew McPhail observed um, really that his outings in the streets were more of a slow procession, every dog and every child one met must be spoken to and each made to answer. So this just made me like this made me think of like the type of grandpa that you want to have. Like yeah. He's, like he's just interested in kids and animals and he probably tells them cute, funny stories and it's just endearing. Can you imagine how fantastic he would have been if he hadn't had to go to war and go through all that? <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I th He's definitely a man who I think probably had a lot to, more to offer the world on top of his like hundreds of thousands of accomplishments that he's already done. So, yeah, it's too bad. Oh, spoiler alert, he, he passes away. Oh. <laughs> but um, anyway, um, he would also send letters home to his nephews and nieces on behalf of Bonfire. Now, Bonfire would promise that his master was doing well and share in his delight of having recently received a good bucket of oats. And of course, he would sign the letter with a stamp of his horseshoe. Oh, I love it. And you can find this all online. Like the letters exist. It's really sweet. Um, so of course, we've kind of already alluded to this. Um, the war, of course, was long and its toll was heavy. 
Now on January 23rd, 1918, John was promoted to consulting physician to the British First Army. Now this was an appointment that John was obviously pleased to receive because um, it was a huge honor, especially for a Canadian. Like this was a big deal. Um, however, that very day, John was found slumped in his chair, complaining of a headache and stomach pains. Now he was immediately put on bed rest and monitored closely. Now by the 25th, John was starting to recover a little bit from what was an attack of pneumonia, um, but things again turned on the 26th and he was showing signs of cerebral irritation, which is basically kind of like increased pressure in your brain. And so by the time like the attending physicians came to collect a blood sample, uh, for testing, uh, John developed right-sided hemiplegia, um, which is like paralysis, uh, with Bell's palsy, which is facial, facial paralysis. Um, and unfortunately, his pulse was too weak um, to count. So they kind of discovered after the fact that his whole body was septic. And there was nothing, unfortunately, that they could do for him. Um, and he passed away at 1.30 a.m., on January 28th. Now, uh, John's funeral had, of course, all the pomp and circumstance worthy of his contributions to the CEF, and it was attended by all commanding officers in the area, including Lieutenant General Sir Arthur Curry, who was the commander of the Canadian Corps at the time. Now, the funeral procession was led by his faithful horse bonfire, and he was finally laid to rest at the Wimereau Cemetery and Ypres. So that was the life of John McRae. Oh uh, my gosh, Ashley, that's so sad. He couldn't have been more than, what, he was in his 40s or 50s? I think he was 44, 45. Yeah. So he was very young. Um, and we'll talk about this in future episodes, but it goes to show that no matter how brilliant you are, no matter how strong you are, you can become susceptible to post-traumatic stress and it does have physical implications on you. And I think that was one of the major reasons why, why John became ill. So it's very heartbreaking. So you might be wondering about maybe a few missing details. If you recall, John wrote the famous poem in Flanders Fields and then he promptly threw it away. So how is it that this poem and the iconic poppy became integral to Remembrance Day ceremonies around the world? Well, the truth is, it's a little fuzzy. We don't really quite know for sure. Supposedly, the poem was either picked up by Colonel Morrison or, Camptis, or Captain Francis Scrimger. Now, Scrimger was the surgeon of the 14th Regiment. So it kind of was in limbo for a little while. Nobody really knows who picked it up or if John rewrote it, we don't know. Um, but it was Scrimger that encouraged John to submit his poem to Punch Magazine. And on December 8th, 1915, the poem was published, um, but it was published anonymously. It actually took quite some time for John to actually um, claim, <laughs> claim his name to that poem. I'm glad he did. Um, so Major General Edward Morrison commented um, that for this poem, the men have learned it with their hearts, which is quite another thing from committing it to memory. Now, soon the poem became widely published around the world, 
and even landed on the desk of Moina Bell Michael. Now, she was a professor at the University of Georgia. Now, Moina wrote, the last verse transfixed me. This was for me a full spiritual experience. It seemed as though the silent voices again were vocal, whispering in sighs of anxiety onto anguish. From that moment, she endeavored to ensure that the world would always wear a red poppy of Flanders Fields as a sign of remembrance and, and emblem of keeping the faith with all who died. Now, shortly before the armistice was signed, she went to her local shop to purchase artificial poppies for the men at her local YMCA headquarters in New York City. But it wasn't until 1920, after Moina witnessed the hardships endured by disabled soldiers, that she was inspired to sell the poppy to raise funds for these veterans. Now, as a result of her efforts, the poppy became the recognized symbol of both the American and British legions. Today, the poppy is sold around the world, particularly in Commonwealth countries, to raise funds for veterans, and it has become the eternal symbol of remembrance to those that gave their lives for our own. So that is the end of our John McRae story, but just a couple of notes. If you are lucky enough to live in Guelph, Ontario, you can visit the McRae house. Um, I think that will be a future bucket list stop for me. Um, and of course you can visit John's grave site like thousands of others. Uh, it is cared for by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And I, I just wanted to say I was, when I was in Belgium and France, like I was almost completely awestruck at how immaculate these sites were maintained. And it filled me with such a huge sense of gratitude to their staff that obviously worked tirelessly to preserve the memory of our fallen with, I think, the dignity they deserve. So I'm gonna put a link um, to their website in our show notes. If you are interested in learning more, um, you can go there and they also accept donations. That was quite the story, Ash. I had no idea. I knew that he wrote the poem. I obviously know the poem because we said it every year in school. And But wow, I had no idea about the man himself. That's amazing. I didn't either. And I was just thrilled to find like all the information I did about him. Like a lot of his stuff is preserved. Um, so you can go online and and find all this information. So that's like, I just love him. He's just, <laughs> he was a delight, a delightful man. <laughs> oh, I'm glad that you could share that story with us, Ash. Thank you for educating me on that. You're welcome. So that's it for today. Uh, if you want to find out more about us, please go to our website at whataboutthecanadians.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. 